now to try to row, for the oars would have been twisted from his hands in a moment, and John took the helm and told Mary to lie down in the bottom of the boat. He had already turned the boat's head up the lake, the direction in which the storm was traveling. The boat sprang forward as if it had received a blow when the gale struck it. John had more than once been out on the lake with the fishermen when sudden storms had come up and knew what was best to be done. When he had laid in his oars, he had put them so that the blades stood partly up above the bow and caught the wind somewhat, and he himself crouched down in the bottom, with his head below the gunwale and his hand on the tiller, so that the tendency of the boat was to drive straight before the wind. With a strong crew, he knew that he could have rowed obliquely toward the shore, but alone his strength could have done nothing to keep the heavy boat off her course. The sea rose as if by magic, and the spray was soon dashing over them, each wave as it followed the boat rising higher and higher. The shores were no longer visible, and the crests of the waves seemed to glean with a pallid light in the darkness which surrounded them. John sat quietly in the bottom of the boat with one hand on the tiller and the other arm round Mary, who was crouched up against him. She had made no cry or exclamation from the moment the gale struck them. "'Are we getting near shore?' she asked at last. "'No, Mary. We're running straight before the wind, which is blowing right up the lake. There's nothing to be done but to keep straight before it.' Mary had seen many storms on the lake and knew into what a fury its waters were lashed in a tempest such as was now upon them. "'We are in God's hands, John,' she said with the quiet resignation of her race. "'He can save us if he will. Let us pray to him.' John nodded, and for a few moments no word was spoken. "'Can I do anything?' Mary asked presently, as a wave struck the stern and threw a mass of water into the boat. "'Yes,' John replied. "'Take that earthen pot and bail out the water.' John had no great hope that they would live through the gale, but he thought it better for the girl to keep busily employed. She bailed steadily. But fast as she worked, the water came in faster, for each wave as it swept past them broke on board. So rapidly were they traveling that John had the greatest difficulty in keeping the boat from broaching too, in which case the following wave would have filled or overturned her. "'I don't think it's any use, John,' Mary said quietly, as a great wave broke on board, pouring in as much water in a second as she could have bailed out in ten minutes. "'No use, dear. Sit quietly by me, but first pull those oars aft.' Now tie them together with that piece of rope. Now when the boat goes down, keep tight hold of them. Cut off another piece of rope and give it to me. When we are in the water, I will fasten you to the oars. They will keep you afloat easily enough. I will keep close to you. You know I'm a good swimmer, and whenever I feel tired, I can rest my hands on the oars too. Keep your courage and keep as quiet as you can. These sudden storms seldom last long, and my father will be sure to get the boats out as soon as he can to look for us. John spoke cheerfully, but he had no great hopes of their being able to live in so rough a sea. Mary had still less, but she quietly carried out John's instructions. The boat was half full of water now and rose but heavily upon the waves. John raised himself and looked round in hopes that the wind might, unnoticed, have shifted a little and blown them toward the shore. As he glanced around him he gave a shout. Following almost in their track, and some fifty yards away, was a large galley running before the wind, with a rag of sail set on its mast. "'We are saved, Mary!' he exclaimed. "'Here is a galley close to us!' He shouted loudly, though he knew that his voice could not be heard many yards away in the teeth of the gale, but almost directly he saw two or three men stand up in the bow of the galley. One was pointing toward them, and he saw they were seen. In another minute the galley came sweeping along close to the boat. A dozen figures appeared over her side, and two or three ropes were thrown. John caught one, 
twisted it rapidly round Mary's body and his own, knotted it, and, taking her in his arms, jumped overboard. Another minute they were drawn alongside the galley and pulled on board. As soon as the ropes were unfastened, John rose to his feet, but Mary lay insensible on the deck. "'Carry the damsel into the cabin,' a man who was evidently in authority said. "'She has fainted, but will soon come round. I will see to her myself.' The suddenness of the rescue, the plunge in the water, and sudden revulsion of his feelings affected John so much that it was two or three minutes before he could speak. "'Come along with me, lad,' one of the sailors said, laying his hand on his shoulders. "'Some dry clothes and a draught of wine will set you all right again. But you have had a narrow escape of it. That boat of yours was pretty nearly waterlogged, and in another five minutes we should have been too late.' John hastily changed his clothes in the forecastle took a draught of wine, and then hurried back again toward the aft cabin. Just as he reached it, the man who had ordered Mary to be carried in came out. "'The damsel has opened her eyes,' he said, "'and you need not be uneasy about her. I have given her some woolen clothes, and bade her take off her wet garments and wrap herself in them. Why did you not make for the shore before the tempest broke? It was foolish of you indeed to be out on the lake, when anyone could see that this gale was coming.' I was rowing down, and did not notice it until I turned, John replied. I was making for the shore when the gale struck her. It was well for you that I noticed you. I was myself thinking of making for the shore, although in so large and well-manned a craft as this there is little fear upon the lake. It's not like the great sea, where I myself have seen a large ship, as helpless before the waves as that small boat we picked you from. I had just set out from Tiberias when I marked the storm coming up, but my business was urgent, and moreover, I marked your little boat, and saw that you were not likely to gain the shore. So I bade the helmsman keep his eye on you until the darkness fell upon us, and then to follow straight in your wake, for you could but run before the wind. And well he did it, for when we first caught sight of you, you were right ahead of us. The speaker was a man of about thirty years of age, tall, and with a certain air of command. I thank you indeed, sir, John said, for saving my life and that of my cousin Mary, the daughter of my father's brother. Truly my father and mother will be grateful to you for having saved us, for I am their only son. Whom are they to thank for our rescue? I am Joseph, the son of Matthias, to whom the Jews have entrusted the governorship of this province. Josephus! John exclaimed in a tone of surprise and reverence. So men call me, Josephus replied with a smile. It was indeed the governor. Flavius Josephus, as the Romans afterward called him, came of a noble Jewish family. His father Matthias, belonging to the highest of the twenty-four classes into which the sacerdotal families were divided. Matthias was eminent for his attainments in piety, and had been one of the leading men in Jerusalem. From his youth Josephus had carefully prepared himself for public life, mastering the doctrines of the three leading sects among the Jews the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, and having spent three years in the desert with Banus, the ascetic. The fact that at only twenty-six years of age he had gone as the leader of a deputation to Rome on behalf of some priests sent there by Felix shows that he was early looked upon as a conspicuous person among the Jews, and he was but thirty when he was entrusted with the important position of governor of Galilee. Contrary to the custom of the times, he had sought to make no gain from his position. He accepted neither presents nor bribes, but devoted himself entirely to ameliorating the condition of the people and in repressing the turbulence of the lower classes of the great towns, 
and of the robber chieftains who, like John of Gishala, took advantage of the relaxation of authority caused by the successful rising against the Romans to plunder and tyrannize over the people. The expression of the face of Josephus was lofty and at the same time gentle. His temper was singularly equable, and whatever the circumstances he never gave way to anger, but kept his passions well under control. His address was soft and winning, and he had the art of attracting respect and friendship from all who came in contact with him. Popea, the wife of Nero, had received him with much favor, and bravely as he fought against them, Vespasian and Titus were afterward as much attached to him as were the Jews of Galilee. There can be no doubt that had he been otherwise placed than as one of a people on the verge of destruction, Josephus would have been one of the great figures of history. John had been accustomed to hear his father and his friends speak in tones of such admiration for Josephus as the man who was regarded not only as the benefactor of the Jews of Galilee, but as the leader and mainstay of the nation, that he had long ardently desired to see him, and to find that he had now been rescued from death by him, and that he was now talking to him face to face filled him with confusion. You are a brave lad, Josephus said, for you kept your head well in a time when older men might have lost their presence of mind. You must have kept your boat dead before the wind, and you were quick and ready in seizing the rope and knotting it round yourself and the maid with you. I feared you might try and fasten it to the boat. If you had, full of water as she was, and fast as we were sailing before the wind, the rope would barely have stood the strain. The clouds are breaking, the captain of the boat said, coming up to Josephus, and I think that we are past the worst of the gale. And it is well so, for even in so staunch a craft there is much peril in such a sea as this. The vessel, although one of the largest on the lake, was indeed pitching and rolling very heavily, but she was light and buoyant, and each time that she plunged bows under, as the following waves lifted her stern high in the air, she rose lightly again, and scarce a drop of water fell into her deep waist, the lofty erections fore and aft throwing off the water. "'Where do you belong, my lad?' Josephus asked. I fear that it is impossible for us to put you ashore until we reach Capernaum, but once there I will see that you are provided with means to take you home. Our farm lies three miles above Hippos. That is unfortunate, Josephus said, since it lies on the opposite side of the lake to Capernaum. However, we shall see. If the storm goes down rapidly, I may be able to get a fishing boat to take you across this evening, for your parents will be in sore trouble. If not, you must wait till early morning." In another hour they reached Capernaum. The wind had by this time greatly abated, although the sea still ran high. The ship was soon alongside a landing jetty, which ran out a considerable distance and formed a breakwater, protecting the shipping from the heavy sea which broke there when the wind was, as at present, from the south. Mary came out from the cabin as the vessel entered the harbor, wrapped up from head to foot in the woolen clothes with which she had been furnished. John sprang to her side. "'Are you quite well, Mary?' "'Quite well,' she said, "'only very ashamed of having fainted "'and very uncomfortable in these wrappings. "'But, oh, John, how thankful we ought to be to God "'for having sent this ship to our aid "'when all seemed lost.' "'We ought indeed, Mary. "'I have been thanking him as I have been standing here "'watching the waves, and I am sure you have been doing the same in the cabin.' "'Yes, indeed, John. "'But what am I to do now?' I do not like going on shore like this, 
and the officer told me I was on no account to put on my wet clothes. Do you know it is Josephus himself, Mary? Think of that, the great Josephus who has saved us. He marked our boat before the storm broke, and seeing that we could not reach the shore, had his vessel steered so as to overtake us. Mary was too surprised to utter more than an exclamation. The thought that the man who had been talking so kindly and pleasantly to her was the great leader of whom she had heard so much quite took away her breath. At that moment Josephus himself came up. "'I am glad to see you have got your colors again, maiden,' he said. "'I am just going to land. Do you, with your cousin, remain on board here. I will send a woman down with some attire for you. She will conduct you both to the house where I shall be staying.' The sea is going down, and the captain tells me that he thinks in another three or four hours I shall be able to get a boat to send you across to your home. It will be late, but you will not mind that, for they are sure not to retire to rest at home, but to be up all night searching for you. A crowd had assembled on the jetty, for Josephus was expected, and the violent storm had excited the fears of all for his safety, and the leading inhabitants had all flocked down to welcome him when his vessel was seen approaching. "'Isn't he kind and good?' Mary said enthusiastically, as she watched the greeting which he received as he landed. "'He talked to me just as if he had been of my own family.' "'He is grand,' John agreed with equal enthusiasm. "'He is just what I pictured to myself that a great leader would be, such as Joshua, or Gideon, or the Prince of the Maccabees.' "'Yes, but more gentle, John.' "'Brave men should always be gentle,' John said positively. They ought to be, perhaps, Mary agreed, but I don't think they are. They chatted then about the storm and the anxiety which they would be feeling at home until an officer, accompanied by a woman carrying a tire for Mary, came on board. Mary soon came out of the cabin dressed, and the officer conducted them to the house, which had been placed at the disposal of Josephus. The woman led them up to a room where a meal had been prepared for them. Josephus is in council with the elders, she said. He bade me see that you had all that you required. He has arranged that a bark shall start with you as soon as the sea goes down, but if by eight o'clock it is still too rough, I shall take the maiden home to my house to sleep, and they will arouse you as soon as it is safe to put out, whatever the hour may be, as your friends will be in great anxiety concerning you. The sun had already set, and just as they finished their meal, the man belonging to the boat came to say that it would be midnight before he could put out. Mary then went over with the woman, and John lay down on some mats to sleep until it was time to start. He slept soundly until he was aroused by the entry of someone with lights. He started to his feet and found that it was Josephus himself with an attendant. "'I had not forgotten you,' he said, "'but I have been until now in council. It is close upon midnight, and the boat is in readiness. I have sent to fetch the damsel, and have bidden them take plenty of warm wraps, so that the night air may do her no harm.' Mary soon arrived, and Josephus himself went down with them to the shore and saw them on board the boat, which was a large one, with eight rowers. The wind had died away to a gentle breeze, and the sea had gone down greatly. The moon was up, and the stars shined brightly. Josephus chatted kindly to John as they made their way down to the shore. "'Tell your father,' he said, "'that I hope he will come over to see me ere long, and that I shall bear you in mind.' "'The time is coming when every Jew who can bear arms will be needed in the service of his country.' And if your father consents, I will place you near my person, for I have seen that you are brave and cool in danger, and you will have plenty of opportunities of winning advancement. 
With many thanks for his kindness, John and Mary took their places in the stern of the boat. Mary enveloped herself in the wraps that had been prepared for her, for the nights were chilly. Then the sail was hoisted and the boat sailed away from the land. The wind had shifted round somewhat to the west, and they were able to lay their course across toward Hippos, but their progress was slow, and the master bade the crew get out their oars and aid the sail. In three hours they neared the land, John pointing out the exact position of the village, which was plainly enough marked out by a great fire blazing on the shore. As they approached it they could see several figures, and presently there came a shout which John recognized as that of Isaac. Any news? Here we are, Isaac, safe and well. There was a confused sound of shouts and cries of pleasure. In a few minutes the boat grated on the shallow shore. The moment she did so, John leaped out over the bow and waded ashore, and was at once clasped in his mother's arms, while one of the fishermen carried Mary to the land. She received from Martha a full share of her caresses, for she loved the girl almost as dearly as she did her own son. Then Miriam and the maids embraced and kissed her, while Isaac folded John in his arms. "'The God of Israel be thanked and praised, my children,' Martha exclaimed. "'He has brought you back to us as from the dead, for we never thought to see you again. "'Some of the fishermen returned and told us that they saw your boat far on the lake before the storm burst, "'and none held out hope that you could have weathered such a storm.' "'Where's father?' John asked. "'He's out on the lake, as are all the fishermen of the village searching for you. "'That reminds me. Isaac, set fire to the other piles of wood that we have repaired. If one of the boats returned with any sure news of you, we were to light them to call the others back. One fire if the news was bad, two if it was good. But we hardly even dared to hope the second would be required. A brand from the fire was soon applied to the other piles, and the three fires shone out across the lake with the good news. In a quarter of an hour a boat was seen approaching, and soon came a shout. Is all well? All is well! John shouted in reply, and soon he was clasped in his father's arms. The other boats came in one by one, the last to arrive towing in the boat, which had been found bottom upward, far up the lake, its discovery destroying the last hope of its late occupants being found alive. As soon as Simon landed, the party returned to the house. Miriam and the maids hurried to prepare a meal, of which all were sorely in need, for no food had been eaten since the gale burst on the lake, while their three hours in the boat had again sharpened the appetite of John and Mary. A quantity of food was cooked and a skin of old wine brought up from the cellar, and Isaac remained down on the shore to bid all who had been engaged in the search come up and feast as soon as they landed. John related to his parents the adventure which had befallen them, and they wondered greatly at the narrowness of their deliverance. When the feasting was over, Simon called all together, and solemnly returned thanks to God for mercies which he had given them. It was broad daylight before all sought their beds for a few hours before beginning the work of the day. A week later Josephus himself came to Hippos, bringing with him two nobles who had fled from King Agrippa, and sought refuge with him. He had received them hospitably, and had allotted a home to them at Terachia, where he principally dwelt. He had just before had another narrow escape, for six hundred armed men, robbers and others, had assembled round his house, charging him with keeping some spoils which had been taken by a party of men of that town from the wife of Ptolemy, King Agrippa's procurator, instead of dividing them among the people. For a time he pacified them by telling them that this money was destined for strengthening the walls of their town, 
and for walling other towns at present undefended. But the leaders of the evildoers were determined to set his house on fire and slay him. He had but twenty armed men with him. Closing the doors, he went to an upper room and told the robbers to send in one of their number to receive the money. Directly he entered, the door was closed. One of his hands was cut off and hung round his neck, and he was then turned out again. Believing that Josephus would not have ventured to act so boldly, had he not had a large body of armed men with him, the crowd were seized with panic and fled to their homes. After this the enemies of Josephus persuaded the people that the nobles he had sheltered were wizards, and demanded that they should be given up to be slain, unless they would change their religion to that of the Jews. Josephus tried to argue them out of their belief, saying that there were no such things as wizards, and if the Romans had wizards, who could work them wrong, they would not need to send an army to fight against them. But as the people still clamored, he got the men privately on board a ship, and sailed across the lake with them to Hippos, where he dismissed them with many presents. As soon as the news came that Josephus had come to Hippos, Simon set out with Martha, John, and Mary to see him. Josephus received them kindly, and would permit no thanks for what he had done. "'Your son is a brave youth,' he said to Simon, "'and I would gladly have him near me, if you would like to have it so. This is the time when there are greater things than planting vineyards and gathering in harvests to be done.' and there is a need for brave and faithful men. If, then, you and your wife will give the lad to me, I will see to him and keep him near me. I have need of faithful men with me, for my enemies are ever trying to slay me. If all goes well with the land, he will have a good opportunity of rising to honor. What say you? Do not give an answer hastily, but think it over among yourselves, and if you agree to my proposal, send him across the lake to me. It needs no thought, sir, Simon said. I know well that there are more urgent things now than sowing and reaping, and that much trouble and peril threaten the land. Right glad am I that my son should serve one who is the hope of Israel, and his mother will not grudge him for such service. As to advancement, I wish nothing better than that he should till the land of his fathers. But none can say what the Lord hath in store for us, or whether strangers may not reap what I have sown." Thus, then, the wisdom which he will gain in being with you is likely to be far better inheritance than any I can give. What say you, Martha? I say as you do, Simon. It will grieve me to part with him, but I know that such an offer as that which my lord Josephus makes is greatly for his good. Moreover, the manner in which he was saved from death seems to show that the lord has something for his hand to do, and, and that his path is specially marked out for him. To refuse to let him go would be to commit the sin of withstanding God. Therefore, my lord, I willingly give up my son to follow you. I think you have decided wisely, Josephus said. I tarry here for tonight, and tomorrow cross to Tiberias. Therefore, let him be here by noon. Mary was the most silent of the party on the way home. Simon and his wife felt convinced the decision they had made was a wise one, and although they were not ambitious, they yet felt that the offer of Josephus was a most advantageous one, and opened a career of honor to their son. John himself was in a state of the highest delight. To be about the person of Josephus seemed to him the greatest honor and happiness. It opened the way to the performance of great actions which would bring honor to his father's name. And although he had been hitherto prepared to settle down to the life of a cultivator of the soil, he had had his yearnings for one of more excitement and adventure, and these were now likely to be gratified to the fullest. 
Mary, however, felt the approaching loss of her friend and playmate greatly, though even she was not insensible to the honor which the offer of Josephus conferred upon him. "'You don't seem glad of my good fortune, Mary,' John said, as, after they returned home, they strolled together as usual down to the edge of the lake. "'It may be your good fortune, but it is not mine,' the girl said pettishly. "'It will be very dull here without you. I know what it will be. Your mother will always be full of anxiety, and will be fretting whenever we get news of any disturbances, and that's often enough, for there seem to be disturbances continually. Your father will go about silently. Miriam will be sharper than usual with the maids, and everything will go wrong. I can't see why you couldn't have said that in a year or two you would go with the governor, but that at present you thought you'd better stop with your own people. A nice milksop he would have thought me, John laughed. No, if he thought I was man enough to do him service, it would have been a nice thing for me to say that I thought I was too young. Besides, Mary, after all, it is your good fortune as well as mine, for is it not settled that you are to share it? Josephus is all-powerful, and if I please him and do my duty, he can, in time, raise me to a position of great honor. I may even come to be the governor of a town, or a captain over troops, or a counselor. No, no, Mary laughed, not a counselor, John, a governor, perhaps, and a captain, perhaps, but never, I should say, a counselor. John laughed good-temperedly. Well, then you should look forward to be the wife of a governor or captain. But you see, I might even fill the place of a counselor with credit, because I could always come to you for advice before I gave an opinion. Then I should be sure to be right. But seriously, Mary, I do think it great honor to have had such an offer made me by the governor. Seriously, so do I, John, though I wish in my heart he had not made it. I had looked forward to living here all my life, just as your mother has done, and now there will be nothing fixed to look forward to. Besides, where there is honor, there is danger. There seems to be always tumults, always conspiracies, and then, as your father says above all, there are the Romans to be reckoned with. And, of course, if you are near Josephus, you run a risk going wherever he does. I shall never be in greater risk, Mary, than we were together on that lake the other day. God helped us then and brought us through it, and I have faith that he will do so again. It may be that I am meant to do something useful before I die. At any rate, when the Romans come, everyone will have to fight. So I shall be in no greater danger than anyone else. I know, John, and I'm not speaking quite in earnest. I am sorry you're going. That's only natural. But I am proud that you are to be near our great leader, and I believe that our God will be your shield and protector. Well, we'd better go in. Your father will doubtless have much to say to you this evening, and your mother will grudge every minute you are out of her sight. Chapter 3 The Revolt Against Rome that evening the rabbi Solomon ben Manasseh came in, and was informed of the offer which Josephus had made. You were present, rabbi, at the events which took place in Jerusalem, and at the defeat of Cestius, Simon said. John has been asking me to tell him more about these matters, for now that he is to be with the governor, it is well that he should be acquainted with public affairs. I will willingly tell him the history, for as you say, it is right that the young man should be well acquainted with the public events, and the state of parties, and though the story must be somewhat long, I will try and not make it tedious. The first tumult broke out in Caesarea, and began by phrase between our people 
and the Syrian Greeks. Felix, the governor, took the part of the Greeks, and many of our people were killed and more plundered. When Felix was recalled to Rome, we sent a deputation there with charges against him. But the Greeks, by means of bribery, obtained a decree against us, depriving the Jews of Caesarea of rights of equal citizenship. From this, constant troubles arose. But outside Caesarea, Festus kept all quiet, putting down robbers as well as impostors who led the people astray. Then there came troubles in Jerusalem. King Agrippa's palace stood on Mount Zion, looking toward the temple, and he built a lofty story from whose platform he could command a view of the courts of the temple and watch the sacrifices. Our people resented this impious intrusion and built a high wall to cut off the view. Agrippa demanded its destruction on the ground that it intercepted the view of the Roman guard. We appealed to Nero and sent him a deputation headed by Ismael the high priest and Hilkiah the treasurer. They obtained an order for the wall to be allowed to stand, but Ismael and Hilkiah were detained at Rome. Agrippa thereupon appointed another high priest, Joseph, but soon afterwards were nominated Annas in his place. When Festus, the Roman governor, was away, Annas put to death many of the sect called Christians to gratify the Sadducees. The people were indignant, for these men had done no harm, and Agrippa deprived Annas of the priesthood and appointed Jesus, son of Damni. Then unhappily Festus, who was a just and good governor, died, and Albinus succeeded him. He was a man greedy of money and ready to do anything for gain. He took bribes from robbers and encouraged rather than repressed evildoers. There was open war in the streets between the followers of various chief robbers. Albinus opened the prisons and filled the city with malefactors, and at the completion of the works at the temple, 18,000 workmen were discharged, and thus the city was filled with men ready to sell their services to the highest bidders. Albinus was succeeded by Gesius Florus, who was even worse than Albinus. This man was a great friend of Cestius Gallus, who commanded the Roman troops in Syria, and who therefore scoffed at the complaints of the people against Florus. At this time strange prodigies appeared in Rome. A sword of fire hung above the city for a whole year. The inner gate of the temple, which required twenty men to move it, opened by itself. Chariots and armed squadrons were seen in the heavens, and worse than all, the priests in the temple heard a great movement and a sound of many voices which said, Let us depart hence. So things went on in Jerusalem until the old feud at Caesarea broke out afresh. The trouble this time began about one of our synagogues. The land around it belonged to a Greek, and for this our people offered a high price. The heathen who owned it refused, and to annoy us raised mean houses round the synagogue. The Jewish youths interrupted the workmen, and the wealthier of the community, headed by John, a publican, subscribed eight talents and sent them to Florus as a bribe that he might order the building to be stopped. Florus took the money and made many promises, but the evil man desired that a revolt should take place in order that he might gain great plunder. So he went away from Caesarea and did nothing, and a great tumult arose between the heathen and our people. 
In this we were worsted and went away from the city, while John, with twelve of the highest rank, went to Samaria to lay the matter before Florus, who threw them into prison, doubtless the more to excite the people, and at the same time sent to Jerusalem and demanded seventeen talents from the treasury of the temple. The people burst into loud outcries, and Florus advanced upon the city with all his force. But we knew that we could not oppose the Romans, and so received Florus on his arrival with acclamations. But this did not suit the tyrant. The next morning he ordered his troops to plunder the upper market and to put to death all they met. The soldiers obeyed and slew three thousand six hundred men, women, and children. You may imagine, John, the feelings of grief and rage which filled every heart. The next day the multitude assembled in the marketplace, wailing for the dead and cursing Florus. But the principal men of the city, with the priests, tore their robes, and went among them praying them to disperse and not to provoke the anger of the governor. The people obeyed their voices and went quietly home. But Florus was not content that matters should end so. He sent for the priests and leaders and commanded them to go forth and receive with acclamations of welcome two cohorts of troops who were advancing from Caesarea. The priests called the people together in the temple and with difficulty persuaded them to obey the order. The troops, having orders from Florus, fell upon the people and trampled them down and driving the multitude before them entered the city and at the same time Florus sallied out from his palace with his troops and both parties pressed forward to gain the castle of Antonia, whose possession would lay the temple open to them and enable Florus to gain the sacred treasures deposited there. But as soon as the people perceived their object, they ran together in such vast crowds that the Roman soldiers could not cut their way through the mass which blocked up the streets, while the more active men going up onto the roofs hurled down stones and missiles upon the troops. What a scene was that, John! I was on the portico near Antonia and saw it all. It was terrible to hear the shouts of the soldiers as they strove to hew their way through the defenseless people, the war cries of our own youths, the shrieks and wailings of the women. While the Romans were still striving, our people broke down the galleries connecting Antonia with the temple, and Florus, seeing that he could not carry out his object, ordered his troops to retire to their quarters, and calling the chief priests and the rulers, proposed to leave the city, leaving behind him one cohort to preserve peace. As soon as he had done so, he sent to Cestius Gallus lying accounts of the tumults, laying all the blame upon us, while we and Bernice, the sister of King Agrippa, who had tried in vain to obtain mercy for the people from Florus, sent complaints against him. Cestius was moving to Jerusalem to inquire into the matter, as he said, but really to restore Florus, when fortunately King Agrippa arrived from Egypt. While he was yet seven miles from the city, a procession of people met him, headed by the women whose husbands had been slain. These, with cries and wailings, called on Agrippa for protection, and related to a centurion, who Cestius had sent forward, and who had met Agrippa on the way, the cruelty of Florus. When the king and the centurion arrived in the city, they were taken to the marketplace and shown the houses where the inhabitants had been massacred. Agrippa called the people together, and taking his seat on a lofty dais, 
with Bernice by his side, harangued them. He assured them that when the emperor heard what had been done, he would send a better governor to them in the place of Flores. He told them that it was vain to hope for independence, for that the Romans had conquered all the nations of the world, and that the Jews could not contend against them, and that war would bring about the destruction of the city and the temple. The people exclaimed they had taken up arms not against the Romans, but against Flores. Agrippa urged us to pay our tribute and repair the galleries. This was willingly done. We sent out leading men to collect the arrears of tribute, and these soon brought in forty talents. All was going on well, until Agrippa tried to persuade us to receive Flores till the emperor should send another governor. At the thought of the return of Flores, a mad rage seized the people. They poured abuse upon Agrippa, threw stones at him, and ordered him to leave the city. This he did, and retired to his own kingdom.